invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I'm teaching through Colossians this summer at the chapel, and last week we looked at Paul, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, holding up a diamond, and just like a diamond, holding Jesus up and describing him. We learned some things last week. Number one, we learned that quality does not start with a C. Anybody here last week? I was trying off the top of my head to tell the five C's of buying a diamond, you know, carrot and color and that, and I said the word quality, and uh, Willie Lee called me on it, out of the service, so that was very good. But we've learned just how supernatural and how supremely valuable Jesus is, and so this week we're looking at the word reconciled, reconciled in Colossians chapter 1. Reconciled means to bring two sides together, two who were formerly at odds with each other, you could even say two who were enemies of one another, had brought, been brought together in reconciliation. A man was turning 100 years old, so the news crew came to do an interview with this 100-year-old man, and they asked him the question, 100 years? What are you most proud of? He said, I don't have an enemy in the world. They said, what an accomplishment. What a, what a sweet thought. He said, yep, outlived all of them. Some of you heard that before. You were ahead of me. And that's not really reconciliation. That's just lasting longer than anybody else. But what Jesus has done at the cross is he has reconciled us to God. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at the price of reconciliation, the results of reconciliation, and end with the proof of reconciliation. So let me read these verses. We're picking up where we left off in verse 19 and 20 and continuing through verse 23. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the first thing I want you to see is the price of reconciliation. We had a problem. We were enemies of God. We had sinned. We had fallen short of the glory of God. We had a problem. We could not get to God. There was nothing we could do to reconcile ourselves to God, and so he paid the price. So the first thing we see is it was the Father's Good pleasure, literally to think well of or to approve. God says, my pleasure. If you go to Chick-fil-A and you say, thank you, what are they going to say? That's not good. Y'all, have you ever been to Chick-fil-A? Come on. Hey, by the way, this is live. I'm actually here. I can hear you. This isn't video. If you go to Chick-fil-A and say, thank you, what do they say? All right, you've all signed up. Steve's going to be passing out applications at the back. Steve Farmer's the operator of the one in Merle's Inlet, and I told him I was going to call on him to see if he knew what to say, but I knew he already knew that. But this is God saying, my pleasure. This is God's purpose, his plan in motion, plan in action. It was his pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. Now, I told you last week, there was a beginning of Gnostic heresy. The two things that were happening that made Paul write the letter to the church at Colossae is Jesus was being devalued. Two things, either there was some teaching that he wasn't enough. There was some teaching, yes, he died on the cross, but it wasn't enough. You need to add something to the cross. When you add anything to the cross, it becomes an enemy of the cross. Because hear me say this, the cross 
was and is enough. But others were teaching that Jesus wasn't really fully God. So Paul is hitting at the heart of this Gnostic heresy that would become more full-blown in the next century, the second century of the church. But he's saying it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness, how much of the fullness? All of it. Jesus was fully God. He wasn't one of these emanated beings that came from God. They slowly got more evil until finally, once they touched earth, they were fully evil because Gnostics believed God was in the heavens. He couldn't touch earth. And yet Jesus did exactly that, became one of us. So it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness dwell in him. And that second thing, so all the fullness was the first thing that was his pleasure. Secondly, to reconcile all things to himself, to change from enemy to a restored relationship with God. Isn't it interesting, the one who had been wronged, the one who had been sinned against God, had to be the one to take initiative to make things right with man. No matter what we tried, it was not enough. And so God's two pleasures were that all the fullness dwell in him and that he would reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. This is what happens in reconciliation. Peace is made between two people or two factions that were at odds with one another. But how did that peace get made? You've got to get this. This is the price of reconciliation. He made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the means for peace. In the Old Testament, the way you had peace with God was to sacrifice an animal. They sacrificed animals throughout the year, but they had one day in particular called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They would sacrifice bulls, goats, sheep, especially sheep, because it reminded them of what God had instituted back at the Passover, the exodus out of Egypt, and that is the Passover lamb. The blood was applied to the lentils and the doorpost of the house, and so the death angel passed over those homes. And so it was a picture of what was going to happen at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it was enough. He shed his blood. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But you've got to get this. He didn't just bleed. The blood of Christ was symbolic. It was significant because that's what happened in the Old Testament. Those animals bled, but they died. So Jesus didn't just bleed at the cross from the beating or the piercings. Jesus ultimately gave his life. So when you think about reconciliation initiated by God, the price of reconciliation was Jesus Christ himself giving his life on the cross. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took your place. Who deserved to go to the cross? I did. You did. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse, Romans 6.23 says, But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you don't get anything else this morning, you've got to get the fact reconciliation cost something. There was a price that had to be paid, and you and I couldn't pay that price. Jesus did. He died in your place. So that's the price of reconciliation. Let's look secondly at the results of reconciliation. You were formally, and I want you to get this, if you're a Christian... This applies to you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're still what I'm about to describe. Three things were about you were true about you formally. This is before you came to Christ, formally, you were alienated. So the first thing that Paul says about us 
Christians, because he's writing to the church at Colossae, you used to be this way. You used to be. You're not this way anymore, but you used to be alienated. And every now and then, we need to remember that. You don't need to spend a lot of time spending a lot too much energy looking at your past because it's not good. But every now and then, you need to be reminded, I am what I am because of Christ. I used to be alienated from God. It literally means to be estranged, cut off, or separated. What a change from the garden. When Adam and Eve were in the garden with God, what did they do? They enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, walked with God, talked with God, experienced God. What happened? Sin happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, that perfect fellowship was broken. And God has been about restoring that. You were alienated. You're now redeemed. You're now reconciled. This alienation will affect your mind, it'll affect your deeds. Literally, you're alienated. It means you're not from around here. You ever been somewhere where people hear you talk or see the way you dress and say, you ain't from around here? That happens to me a lot. People say, I love your accent. I spoke to a group in Chicago one time, and I think I used the word y'all, and everybody laughed. I didn't know what they were laughing at. I said, what are you laughing at? They said, you said y'all. I said, yeah, I said a lot from where I'm from. They said, are you about to say fixing? <laughs> I said, well, I was fixing to, but I won't now. I'll try not to. When people come here and they say, I love your accent, I say, I don't have an accent. I talk the way people from here talk. You're the one with an accent if you don't talk like this. But it means you're not from around here. We were alienated from Christ, alienated from God the Father. And so something had to be done. Not only were we alienated, but that alienation led to hostility. We were hostile in mind. We were enemies of God. The fact is we liked the darkness, and that hostility affected the way we thought. And it affected our behavior. We were engaged in evil deeds. John 3, 19 and 20. This is right after the big verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. You get to verse 19. And he said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's why evil happens in the dark. You don't want to be seen. You want to be under the cloak of darkness. So Paul says, here's what you were. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. And then the three-letter word, yet. Let that sink in. God could have left us there, and we deserve to stay there. We deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. Yet, he has reconciled you. He's brought the two sides together, and he did it through his fleshly body. Again, this smacks against what the Gnostics were teaching. Yes, the flesh of God came and dwelt. God incarnate, God Emmanuel, the one who dwelt among us, Jesus, came and through his fleshly body he emptied himself. He became one of us. You ever thought about that? God loved us so much that he didn't want to stay alienated from us. It was us that had walked away from him. It's us that willfully sinned to leave him. So we're not who we used to be. We're no longer alienated because of his fleshly body. We're no longer hostile in mind. And we should be no longer engaged in evil deeds. So he, he reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. And it restored the original fellowship in order. Here's why he did it. In order to present you. It literally means to stand beside. The picture you get is that Jesus in heaven stands beside us and says, This one's mine. Three things were about you, were true about you before you came to Christ, and that is you were 
alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds. These same three things are not the same, but three things, again, are true about you in Christ. So you're able to stand before God the Father, and these three things are true about you. First, you are holy. He's able to present you holy, literally sacred, set apart, set apart from the world, set apart to God. And when does that happen? I think some people think, well, that only happens in heaven. That happens when you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're separated from the things of this world. You're separated unto God. And the truth is you're holy. The problem is we don't act like it. We don't live like it. And I think part of that is we're still dealing with mental issues. <laughs> we still have people saying that's not who you are. God doesn't really love you. Look at all the things you've done. Listen, there was nothing we could do to make God love us. He loved us because we're his children. He loved us because he created us. He loved us enough, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you're holy. Secondly, you're blameless, literally unblemished. When God looks at you, he sees no blemish. Anybody ever look at their face real good in the mirror? Especially when you're a teenager. You're about to go on a date. My mom had one of those makeup mirrors that had the lights around it. You could go look in that thing, and it would scare you. The scary part was when you flipped it over, and it magnified it like a hundred times, and you're like, I don't need to leave the house. We're good about finding blemishes in ourselves. We're better about finding blemishes in other people. But here's what Paul is saying is true about us. We're holy, and we're blameless, unblemished. It ought to remind you of the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. In order for a lamb to be sacrificed, it had to be what? Spotless, unblemished. That's who Jesus was, but that's who we are now in Christ. When God looks at us, he looks at us through a different set of lenses than we look through. He looks at us through Christ. And because of Christ, we're holy, we're blameless, and last, we're beyond reproach. Literally, we're unaccused. You've been called to the courtroom to give a, uh, an account of your life, and the charges are about to be read, and they can't read any charges. Why? Because you're unaccused. You are holy, blameless, you're beyond reproach. Revelations chapter 12, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice out of heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Did you know that's what's going on in heaven right now? Our enemy, the devil, loves to bring accusation against you before God. You know what God says? He's mine. She's mine. That's not held against him anymore. You are forgiven. The word forgiven means to send away. So you're holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now be honest. Why is it easier to believe the first three things about you than the last three? Most of us don't struggle realizing, yeah, I'm alienated from God. I'm hostile in mind. I'm engaged in evil deeds. Before you came to Christ, you acknowledged, I need a Savior. But before you leave here today and after you leave here today, I want you to accept the last three because the first three are not you anymore. That's the before picture. It's been wiped out at the cross. It applies to you if you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're a Christian. We'll talk more about new creation in a minute. But why is it easier to believe that than it is the fact in Christ, now keep in mind, in Christ, I'm holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Can we still find fault? Yes, God's still working on us. That's called sanctification. He's began a process in us that he's promised to bring about to completion. But if you were to die right now, you would face God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Isn't that good news? Amen. Thank you. One person thought that was good news. I see that hand. 
That's good news. And what did you do to become holy, blameless, and beyond reproach? You trusted Christ. He did everything. He did it all. So that's the price. Now the proof. The proof is if indeed you continue in the faith. F.F. Bruce said if the Bible teaches final perseverance of the saints, it also teaches that the saints are those who finally persevere in Christ. If you're genuinely saved, what I'm about to share with you is true about you. If you've truly trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, not just giving lip service. It's easy to say I'm a Christian. We live in a Christian nation, don't we? We live in a nation that's almost anti-Christian now. We live in the Bible Belt, right? You're in South Carolina. Everybody here believes in Jesus, don't they? I had a lady tell me that after my first sunrise service on the beach nearly a little over 20 years ago. Ran into her at a restaurant. Never seen her before. But she said, I was at the sunrise service. You're going to love it here. Everybody's a Christian. Really? I've been here long enough to know that ain't true. So if you continue in the faith, so three things, you will continue in the faith. One of the proofs that you're legitimate is that you continue in the faith. Literally, you remain, you abide in the faith. First John 2:19 says, "They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us." So if you're a child of God, if it's legitimate, you're going to continue in the faith. Number 2, you'll be firmly established. Remember Jesus teaching the parable of the sower? He talked about the seed being scattered, some of it fell on the footpath didn't really take root some of it fell among thorns and got choked out some of it fell among the rocks but some of it fell on fertile good soil and it bore fruit multiplied fruit well the gospel message has been proclaimed and some have said oh i believe that but you've never trusted christ as your lord and savior you're never given him your life you're religious and some will show up in heaven one day and jesus is going to say depart from me i never knew you what a scary thought but we are firmly established we're standing firmly on the truth third thing we're steadfast immovable it literally means to sit if you're looking for something where do you find it well it's always in the last place you look if you're looking for a savior you found him in jesus christ and you don't have to keep looking you can sit and keep in mind this is in face of all the false teaching that's being taught but if you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're sitting in that truth. You're residing. You're remaining there. You are steadfast. When you know the truth, you stay with the truth. You don't have to look somewhere else. And you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Why would you move? Well, the reason they were moving is they were getting close. They liked what they heard. But in the town of Colossae and trying to infiltrate its way into the church was the false teaching that Jesus wasn't enough or the false teaching that Jesus really wasn't God. And that would move you away from trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Paul says, no, the evidence is going to be that you continue in the faith. You're firmly established. You're steadfast. You're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's where your hope is. Your expectation, your firm confidence is in the fact, not in your own efforts, but it's in the fact you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you have confidence there. It's not just that you're holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. If you are in Christ, the hope of the gospel. The gospel means good news that you've heard. If you go to the mechanic and your car's got problems, it won't run, it's been towed to the mechanic, and the mechanic comes out and says, I got good news for you. 
you need a new engine and a new transmission. And you say, well, that's not good news. He said, yeah, I was just kidding. The good news is Jesus Christ has come, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And through him, we can have eternal life. So Paul's encouraging this church in Colossae by saying, you've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. It's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So what's Paul saying? He's saying to the church at Colossae, even though we believe he had never been to Colossae, the church was started by Epaphras, a disciple of Paul, probably a convert of Paul. Paul's now in prison. Epaphras has left Colossae, traveled about 1,000 miles to get to a Roman prison cell to visit with the apostle Paul. And what he's telling Paul is, hey, church is doing great, but there are some people that are trying to teach false things. And so Paul writes the letter back to Colossae and even says, share this with other churches. So Paul's saying, if you are in Christ, these things are true about you. You're holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. You've been reconciled. What does that word mean? It means two sides have been brought together. Let me share 2 Corinthians with you. If you've got your Bibles with you or your Bible app, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just five truths of reconciliation that I want to leave with you this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Let me just read verse 17 first. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, first thing about reconciliation is, is for those who are in Christ. What does that mean? He's your Savior. He's your Lord. You've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not just a religious experience, but you've legitimately given your life to Christ in faith. So reconciliation happens because you're in Christ. Second, same verse, you're a new creation. Isn't that good news? God didn't send down some things to say, do these 10 steps, these 12 things, these 25 things, and maybe I'll let you into heaven. God looked down and said, even while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so we're a brand new creation. Hear this. God didn't die on the cross to make you a better person. He died to make you a brand new person. Big difference. So you're a new creation. If you're reconciled, verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. So the third thing is it comes through Christ. It doesn't come any other way. It doesn't come through your effort. It comes through Christ. Fourth, same verse, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that? If you've been reconciled, you need to become a reconciler. What does that mean? That means you tell other people what God's done to you and for you. You tell other people who are hopeless and helpless without a Savior, hey, Jesus died on the cross for you. Follow my example. I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. You can too. Be reconciled to God. Be no longer alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. And last, verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Did you hear the word? You're forgiven. Verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them. If there was a list, the list would have been long of my trespasses against God. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and I trusted him as my Lord and Savior, that list got stamped over it, paid in full. Not holding my trespasses against me. You are forgiven. Your sins have been sent away. They're as far as the east is from the west. Last week, I tried to close the service with a 
video by S.M. Lockridge, who just does a great job. I've shared it here a couple of times, but I really wanted to share it last week. We had a computer malfunction, so I'm going to close that way this week. Let me close this in prayer and then listen just for a few moments of this prayer or this message from S.M. Lockridge about what King Jesus has done for us. Father,